This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Major media organisations all over the world are currently copping criticism for the way that they're reporting what's happening in Gaza. Every word you say is being scrutinised so closely and is likely to be contested by by one side or the other or both, and that, that definitely adds to the pressure. On Media Watch this week, we ask a top BBC news boss how they're handling it, even when the criticism's coming from its own government. Also, how the Rugby World Cup fired up our sports reporters. Massive physical forward packs beating the living snot out of each other. But first, our political reporters and our new political leaders got off on the wrong foot this week. We ask a veteran political editor, is this a real media freedom fight with the interests of the public at stake or just a bit of collective posturing to pressure the politicians? So no word from Winston Peters, no word from the New Zealand First Caucus and board. In fact, the board are going home. Uh, Mr Peters emerged at about 10 to 5 after another full day of talks New Zealand First Board and caucus the second day of course. That was John Campbell after the election in 2017 when he was RNZ's checkpoint host and New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters was negotiating long and hard with both major parties to form a new government. Hugh Hefner and Tom Petty were both still alive when the consultations began in Wellington but both had died by the time Winston made his mind up and the waiting was the hardest part for the parliamentary press pack. Every day they doorstepped politicians for answers, or failing that, just hints about what might be going on between whom behind closed doors. Now sometimes they got nothing, or sometimes a bit of something at the beehive lifts or the lobby, which didn't really help. Inside the elevators, reporters traipse in circles, waiting for Mr Peters to emerge. His absence is even more pronounced compared to last week's ubiquity. Then, when he had back-to-back meetings with National and Labour, he'd appear as many as eight times a day. Now, instead, we're left to interpret the cryptic comments drip-fed to us by his MP, Shane Jones. There was a verse in the Bible. I think it's Proverbs 29.14. Have a look at it, Ewa. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. Well, we all know now what happened in the end, and it wasn't quite the greatest story ever told, but it was one that went on for ages. Now, six years and two elections on, you'd think no one would be keen to repeat that experience. But last Thursday, six years almost to the day, the press pack was back, badgering the New Zealand First Leader at the airport with questions that he didn't even acknowledge, let alone answer. And TVNZ even put a video of it up on YouTube with a... marking each of the 27 futile requests. Happy to be back. Possibly back in town. Now it's hard to know who emerged from all that with a greater dignity deficit or from the next episode at Parliament that day. Into the Parliament, a full-scale operation through a little-known entrance. News Hub spotted him, though. Mr Peters, have you spoken to Christopher Luxon yet? Why won't you say anything, Mr Peters? Now eventually, New Zealand First went into a select committee room, but more questions were shut down by the party's president, and then TV cameras were banned from an area where they're usually allowed. News Hub's Lloyd Burr said it was a sad day for media freedom, and he deployed a Washington Post-style clarion call hashtag, democracy dies in the dark. Though soon after, he seemed pacified by pastries, borne by New Zealand First media spokesperson and former MediaWorks newsreader, 
Jenny Marcroft. You've been waiting, so we thought we'd bring some afternoon this, tea. Is this actually why you've come out? Yeah. Oh, thank you very You're much. Going, uh, the whole thing. Of Kai, rather than information. Uh, there's no rhetoric to share, but there's the equivalent of loaves and fishes. OK, guys? Thank you very much. And that was MP Shane Jones there again with a bit of biblical filler and an echo of the election situation six years earlier. But this time, it's a different negotiation game. New Zealand First isn't picking a party to lead the next government. We already know that that will be the National Party and that their main ally will be the ACT Party. But the price to pay for Mr Peter's party's support is something that the public wants to know about and the media doesn't want to wait till next month's special vote count to find out what it is. And you can't blame them. Winston Peters made a point of saying that promises made during the election campaign are not worth confetti just the morning after the polls closed last Sunday. So it's understandable the media wouldn't be too happy to hear the Prime Minister-elect tell them on Monday not to expect too much from him. We're going to do that uh, confidentially. We're going to do that in private. We're not going to be negotiating that through the media. And you probably won't get a lot of comment from me about that. In the same breath, Christopher Luxon said he'd already been talking to partner parties, but as we've heard, they are not talking to the media either. And shortly after that, News Talk ZB's political editor Jason Walls then went on to say the new Prime Minister had a bit of a barb for the reporters that he was keeping at arm's length. He keeps talking about these quote-unquote parlour games that the media like to play, which is terrifically offensive. Christopher Luxon, if you're listening, it's actually called reporting the news to the New Zealand public. So we can have that battle when we see him later this afternoon. And those disrespected reporters did have it out with the National Party leader again, ahead of the first caucus meeting the next day, with the Prime Minister sticking to his guns and dissing their work again. I've read a lot of punditry and commentators over my two and a half, three years almost in politics, and I just say to you, uh, often it's often very wrong. And so, again, uh, I'm not interested in too many people's reckons. We're actually going to go to work and work with the parties and the leaders involved and actually build a coalition government that's actually going to be incredibly strong. Uh, there's a lot of people with their reckons, and I just put to you, they could be very, very wrong. Now, one way not to be wrong with the reckons is, of course, to get the right stuff from the horse's mouth. But the Prime Minister-elect's stance is that you can lead him to a media conference, but you can't make him talk. And he was adamant that democracy and the media's role in it would not be diminished by that. What I'm saying to you is I just can't come out here every day and give you a blow-by-blow of what we're discussing with each of those individual could parties, you be, because could, that's not... It's not about that, it's the tone that you're setting by making it sound like we are being um, you know, hungry and ferocious and impatient. No, no, I'm not meaning to say that at all to you. You've got a very important role to play as media. I fully respect that, and I want to have a strong, positive relationship with me because I think it's a very important role in our democracy. Could you then... Well, I just, uh, when I'm being asked about the approach... But when that approach is, don't approach me yet about something we're discussing behind closed doors, well, that's never going to wash with the media. The previous day, veteran political editor Richard Harmon said, on his political news site for subscribers, Politic, that National's relationship with New Zealand First had not got off to a great start. Working through back channels, he reported, the Prime Minister-elect was understood to have offered Winston Peters the role of Speaker to lock in New Zealand First support. And he reported that Winston Peters had said... Do I look like I'd be interested in the Speaker's job when asked about the offer? And that's answering a question, obviously, with another question. But on Tuesday, Richard Harmon wrote that National was trying to keep the negotiations as quiet as possible. And at that fraught media conference on Tuesday, Richard Harmon himself asked Christopher Luxon this. Will you make make secrecy a condition for the other parties to uphold when they get into talks with you? In other words, will you require that they not talk to the media while they're talking to you? 
I think it's in the interest. I think you'll find that uh, actually probably you know the leaders of those of the parties will actually want to work together and actually get through this together, uh, and, and rather than do it through the media, is my hope. Could, well. could you be, could you be negotiations with Winston Peters with offering him the speaker? No, we haven't. We, there's, I appreciate there's lots of reckons. I appreciate there's lots of people with lots of views about what could happen. Uh, I just say to you that has not been... Well, it's it's uh, not been reckoned, it's been reported. Uh, well, by might be been reported. Richard Harman, if you want to sure, tell us wrong. Sure, that's right. And I appreciate there's lots of reports and lots of articles that I've read and lots of columns about lots of things, and that's part of what I'm it not focused on. It wasn't a column, on. it was reported. No, no, it's not, he's not, no, he's not it. thinking it, yeah. he's reporting it. So are you it. saying he's I've wrong? I've got it, it's wrong. And there was plenty more angst over all that at that media conference, but it didn't move the Prime Minister-elect. And Winston Peters' party people and the ACT Party have also had nothing to tell the media yet about what's been discussed. Now, Richard Harman has covered every MMP election and the configuring of coalitions that have followed. I asked him if the allied parties really do need time to talk amongst themselves in private before briefing the media, and isn't that fair enough, and maybe even in the public interest? We've seen some rather um, pointless stuff at the airport this week, haven't we, with people door-stopping politicians coming into Wellington and trying to get some sort of negotiating position from them. Well, they're highly unlikely to tell you if they've got one, Hmm. and they're even more unlikely to tell you while they're at Wellington Airport. Um, But, look, as the negotiations unfold... I guess people are going to be looking for nuance and the slightest, I mean, does Winston have a smile on his face today or whatever, (laughs) that kind of stuff. But really what you've got to do in a situation like this is try and get behind those closed doors metaphorically and try and work your contacts and try and find out what's really going on. To a lot of people watching the news, hearing Chris Luxon telling a bunch of journalists gathered around him in the corridors that, look, you know, it won't be helpful for me to turn up day by day and give you a blow-by-blow account, and I want to do this privately. That, that will seem reasonable to a lot of people. I mean, isn't it? Partly it is. I don't think we've ever had a situation where a leader has come out and held a press conference and said, this is what we discussed today, mm. and these were the positions. So I thought it was a bit overly optimistic on the part of some reporters there. But having said that, Luxon himself may not want to talk but the other two negotiating parties may well want to talk. And if you go back to 2017, we had a situation where the National Party organisation was very keen to find out what was going on in the talks because they were concerned that particularly Stephen Joyce might be willing to make too many concessions to Winston Peters simply to stay in power. So there was a lot of talk going on behind the scenes with the intention that it become public so that the party could understand what was, was going on and, if necessary, put their oar in. Mm. So you asked Christopher Luxon yourself at one of those stand-ups, will you require secrecy from the other parties in the negotiations as well? Um, is, that, is that exactly why you asked that question? A- a- absolutely. Luxon, with the best will in the world, does not have sovereignty over ACT or New Zealand First. Mm. I mean, they can make their own minds up who they talk to. Jessica Much Mackay, the political editor at TVNZ, pushed back at Chris Luxon during one of those stand-ups, I think this was on Tuesday, putting words in her mouth here, but she kind of said to him, you're painting us, the press gallery journalists, as kind of greedy, maybe a little voracious, even aggressive. Um, do you think he is doing that? Is it a fact that he's, he's perhaps just not used to this as a prime minister just yet? Well, I was a bit surprised at what Jessica said. Um, I was standing almost next to her when she said it. 
look, prime ministers are always going to set rules for their engagement with the media, mm. but there's no law that I'm aware of that says the press gallery have to follow them. <laughs> um, is Luxon inexperienced with the media? Yes, absolutely. And I think he has unrealistic ideas about how government formation talks work because he talks about them as if they were a merger or acquisition. <laughs> They're not. They, you know, there's a huge army of people behind each party. There are people with different ambitions. There's not a clear consensus, as there is in a, a company merger, that what we simply want to do is in, 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 elevate the profit and therefore the share price. There are no simple, as he might put it, KPIs for a merger. Everyone is going to have a different agenda, and you've got to bring these kind of sort of complex, whirling eddies together into a whole which may or may not last. But is this, some of the scenes we've seen this week, this kind of face-off, if I can put it like that, is this partly a fear of maybe precedent setting isn't quite right, they're maybe laying down a marker? Is it, is, it, is it the gallery and the senior political editors trying to impress upon him from day one that, you know, you can't keep us at arm's length like this? And it's not really about the coalition talks and, and the formation of the government? Yeah, I think you're right. I think on the campaign, what I've observed has been a growing impatience with Luxon on the part of quite, usually quite balanced and reasonable journalists. There's a feeling that I think there's a frustration with his insistence on just on not answering questions, really. Mm. He just pushes talking points all the time. And he seems to regard his meeting with journalists as if he were meeting with the advertising department. And uh, I think everyone's finding that frustrating. I don't think he's going to have a particularly good relationship with the, the gallery, but he's not the first prime minister to be in that situation. Right. Well, with that in mind, I wonder if you were a bit offended to have your reporting uh, lumped in with the the reckons, the oh, term that he kept he kept using, and he even referred to one point. There'll be lots of people talking to their typewriters in the media about this government formation negotiation business, and you know he didn't want to play into that. <laughs> How did you feel about being lumped in with the uh, the reckons merchants? Well, you get used to it, don't you? <laughs> well. I knew the story was correct. I knew who I'd spoken to. And I also knew that most, or at least two of the political editors that I'm aware of, had spoken to very senior people in New Zealand first and had it confirmed. And even better than that, it had been confirmed, as I understand it, by John Key, by at least one journalist who phoned Key. And uh, it was a good story, I think. And uh, yeah, look, what Mr Luxon is going to have to get used to is that every political party in Parliament leaks. I'm absolutely certain that once they start firing public servants, the public service will start leaking as well. He can't control any of those things. But can we have any sympathy for Mr Luxon here when he refers to not wanting to feed the reckons, as he put it, during this sensitive time when negotiations are going on? Because there is a lot more opinion analysis commentary by political journalists and others, pundits, outsiders, and so on. Um, and that, that is something that will make the job harder. It's not illogical on his part, is it, to not want to give that any, uh, any energy? Look, I'm sure that every political leader in Parliament would much prefer that their only encounter with the press or the media consisted of them speaking and the media not saying a word. There are some big issues on the table in these talks. There are the spending cuts... There is the Waitangi policy. 
and they are going to have to be negotiated. No party is going to come out of these talks with everything that they went in with. And that process will lead to people within the parties, people who voted for them, people in the public generally, asking questions. I think that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable that we try and meet that demand and try and shine some light on what's going on behind uh, those closed doors. You've made a point in your reporting of attending party events, party meetings, both not just during election campaigns, but around conference time as well, attending those sessions, rather than just reporting what leaders have to say. Is this something we need a little more of? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You make contacts. And at the end of the day, the role of a political reporter is to disclose. And to disclose, you need to be have relationships with MPs across the House you need those need to be trusting relationships both ways and the best place to deal with that is at a party conference where there's a lengthy afternoon being spent on local government remits and all the MPs want to go outside and um, have a cup of coffee or whatever they know they're not being reported and you build a base from that that comes in is really useful at a time like this so even if it doesn't generate a story in the here and now yeah mm. absolutely and, and, for example, during the campaign, um, I went with Winston Peters to a potiki, and I turned up in a potiki, and the guy that was sitting the chairs out, I'd had a drink with during the New Zealand First Conference. We had quite a good chat about how things were moving in the Bay of Plenty, etc. But I also know, you know, that I can go and talk to him whenever. And another example, by attending a, an ACT Party event, you heard the leader telling party members, he repeated that claim that yeah, if, if we're in coalition, we will go through things with the National Party bill by bill, they'll need our approval. So it was repeating something that was definitely a newsworthy claim when it was made you know, in the earlier stages of the campaign. Oh, that's a fascinating story. I think there's a little bit more to come out about that um, because I think the people behind Seymour believed that that idea was not going to be mentioned again. But yes, he mentioned it in a speech on uh, Saturday night in uh, Hastings I was quite surprised that he came back to it. So probably something that will come up behind closed doors when he does meet with his <laughs> National Party counterparts and then the leader of the National Party may or may not respond to any <laughs> journalist questions about it in the days ahead, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, all of these questions are going to be asked and it won't be until we get those official results. But look... The one thing that we all are hoping for is that we're not going to go through 43 days, as we did in 1996, um, of waiting for Winston. That was Richard Harmon, former long-serving political editor of TVNZ, and now the editor of the political news site for subscribers, Politic, which this week reported overtures made to the New Zealand First Leader, which the Prime Minister-elect denied, while telling political reporters at Parliament including Richard Harman, not to expect too much comment from him while the talks are going on to form a new government. Parts of the hospital are on fire. I don't know whether that's the emergency department. Certainly the operating suite, the, the part of the roof has fallen. There's broken glass everywhere. There are lots of people who are taking refuge in the hospital. There are, there are people moved into the corridors. Okay, I need, I need to go.
That was Dr. Hassan Abu Sita, a surgeon at Gaza's El Ali Baptist Hospital, who had been helping to treat people wounded for Médecins Sans Frontières when the hospital was devastated by a massive blast that killed hundreds of people, though no one knows exactly how many people died yet or precisely what caused it. RNZ's News at 8 last Tuesday reported it all like this. Palestinian health officials in Gaza say hundreds of people have been killed in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. They're blaming an Israeli strike on the hospital. But the Israel Defence Forces said an initial investigation shows the explosion was caused by a failed Hamas rocket launch. Now this was easily the single deadliest incident of this conflict so far, and it's likely to be the deadliest one in all of the five times Israel and Hamas have fought over Gaza. But as you heard there, Hamas and the Israeli Defence Force blamed each other for it, and the absence of hard evidence put the media reporting it all in a difficult position, as the BBC's Middle East editor Sebastian Usher told RNZ on Thursday night. We have been trying to find out what happened at the Gaza hospital. It's still absolutely unclear. There are varying um, bits of information that are coming out. For now, I don't think anybody can quite say uh, some analysts say that it's most likely to have been Israel. Others say mm, it seems like it might be a misfired rocket. Maybe Israel's correct. So we can't say for now. But I don't think, in a sense, in terms of the mood in the Arab world and the Middle East, that that really matters. I think that uh, the people out on the streets are showing huge anger and they will reject any investigation, any Israeli claim to say that Israel was not responsible. But reporting those claims and counterclaims, in the absence of any facts in support of or to the contrary, creates confusion among the audience. And it's also raised the anger of those objecting to reporters' choice of words. CNN's Clarissa Ward, for example, was criticised heavily on social media for mentioning the Israeli Defence Force claims and then expressing doubt about them at the same time. Not clear where this goes from here. You mentioned IDF said that they are looking into the incident, that it could potentially have been a a Hamas misfire, if you like, of a rocket. We've had a look at a couple of videos that we're not ready to share online yet, but certainly it looked like an enormous blast. Hard to see uh, how that would have been a a misfired rocket. Um, But certainly we are waiting to get more clarity. And getting the clarity that CNN's Clarissa Award spoke of there was not easy. Among those who, alongside expert investigators, tried to sift the available evidence and cut through the information war was Alex Thompson, correspondent for the UK broadcaster Channel 4. Equally, Israel claims the Islamic Jihad failed missile was fired from here, a cemetery very close to the hospital. But look again at the video of the event. The trajectory of the missile doesn't line up with that location. Too high too horizontal. Confusingly, the Israelis' presentation also says the missile was fired from a location down in the southwest. It can't be both. Islamic Jihad say it was an Israeli missile and they have the warhead to prove it, but they haven't produced it. And in the end, Alex Thompson's bleak conclusion was this. Israel and Hamas can tweet what they like. The truth of what happened here last night requires independent, expert investigation. Not happening. Meanwhile, on News Hub at 6 on Thursday, another British correspondent, ITV's John Irvin, put it like this. This war began with a civilian bloodbath of historic significance, and this may well be another one on the other side of the fence.
Any doubt is due to a fierce information war that in truth matters little to the victims of the Gaza hospital tragedy. And even before the Al Ali hospital catastrophe amplified emotions, the hyper-scrutiny of reporters' work was adding to the stress of those reporting from the war zone. Every word you say is being scrutinised so closely and is likely to be contested by, by one side or the other or, or both, and that, that definitely adds to the pressure. That was the UK Channel 4's correspondent Secunda Kumani talking to the BBC's media show last week from Gaza. Now, at times, broadcasters have used the wrong words and given audiences the wrong idea. The BBC's evening news in the UK last week, for example, made a rapid apology for an error just minutes earlier after complaints poured in. Earlier on BBC News, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept that this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Now here's the weather. And earlier this month, after the Hamas attacks from Gaza into Israel, people protested outside the BBC News headquarters in London about the BBC's long-standing policy of never labelling any group terrorists. How many Jews? How many dead Israelis does it take before the BBC can find the courage to call terror by its name? Last week, the UK's Defence Secretary criticised the policy on the BBC's own flagship radio news show today. Israelis are trying to get hold of the Hamas terrorists, who you don't seem to be particularly interested in, and the BBC seems to refuse to call terrorists, even though the British Parliament has legislated that they are terrorists, which is a question I can't the BBC answer yet. Have you not seen any of the coverage on the BBC of the atrocities, the dead, the injured, the survivors? Yes, I have. So how can you say that we're not interested in, in those atrocities? Well, this week, the BBC's Deputy Chief Executive of News, Jonathan Munro, who's also the broadcaster's Director of Journalism, was at Sydney's South by Southwest Festival to talk about how the BBC delivers news from and about conflict zones and criticism of its fairness in an increasingly contested environment these days. I spoke to him about that at Sydney Airport just before he headed home. We've already seen journalists lose their lives in this conflict, working for organisations who are also facing the same uh, dilemmas as we are, and our heart goes out to those people. And secondly, of course, we've got an obligation to audiences to really explain what's going on. And that involves lots of people on the ground as witnesses to events, but, but also the analysis that comes with expert knowledge, because it's a very complicated situation. It's unwinding the claim from the fact is a job on all stories, but on stories as complicated and as polarising as this, that becomes a real challenge. So even if broadcasters do what might be termed to be the right thing, reporting responsibly the claims and the counterclaims, that can just leave the audience you know, at a loss for an understanding. Is that where having specialist editors or the likes of you know, Jeremy Bowen, who's been doing the job and, and knows that region for a long time, is that, is that the main way the BBC can try and address that particular problem? Expertise, which goes with you know longevity of covering the story and having deep contacts in the region, speaking to people over many, many years, is just invaluable. You, you, you simply can't replicate that. People like Jeremy and our chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette, and correspondents who are based in that region, 
We also need to talk to, to interview, to challenge decision makers um, on the ground um, and to reflect the humanity of what's going on because the main story here is about the catastrophic loss of life and the appalling conditions that people are living in, that the hostages are being held in and, you know, and so on, and the humanity of that but ultimately aids understanding and audiences and the credibility of knowledge politically as well as militarily. absolutely essential. It's very difficult to report from within Gaza, and not just at the moment. That's been the case in the past as well. Uh, is that something that needs to be explained to the audience? A lot of reporting they see will come from Israel, where it's uh, practical. Um, reporting from Gaza itself, is, as we're seeing particularly at the moment, really, really difficult and dangerous. Luckily, we do have a correspondent in Gaza. He's moved from Gaza, Gaza City down to Khan Yunis in the south of the Strip. A safer option than staying in Gaza City in the circumstances. But he can't report 24 hours a day. He's, he's looking after his family. Um, he's got his own safety concerns, which are paramount. So we then do have to add to that with reporting from Israel and reporting from London. Some of that is being done by people who know Gaza very well. One of our former Gaza correspondents is currently working out of Jerusalem with a lot of knowledge of how Gaza works, what Gaza's like geographically, and knowledge of the people as well. Where we can't report from any location that's newsworthy in the world, we have to be transparent about that and tell the audience. Um, and then the audience knows that wherever it's coming from, it needs to uphold editorial integrity. Well, as you pointed out, difficult to gather material in Gaza. So sometimes a lot of what people will be seeing is footage, amateur footage, cell phone footage, uh, social media content that's very difficult to verify. But the BBC, not that long ago, launched a new service called BBC Verify, dedicated to checking out this kind of material, maybe vetting it before it's used. And, and here in New Zealand, for example, we're seeing some material stamped with BBC Verify in the corner. What was the thinking behind this and how exactly does it operate? I think there's, there's two strands to this. The first, as you say, is that there's, there's a huge amount of video out there on, on social media. We can all find it at the touch of a button on our phones, the brand of BBC Verify. That's a signpost to the audience that the material that we're looking at, not just from Gaza, but it can apply in all kinds of different stories around the world, um, has been checked by us using methods like geolocation, looking at the metadata on video, looking at landmarks that we can identify, which um, may give a clue even if they're quite far in the background of the video. We may not always be the first people to broadcast a bit of social media video because being accurate is more important than being first or fast. Of course, we all like to break stories quickly, but we'd rather take our time and do that verification process. And that means that the trust that the audience can have in the BBC's content should be retained despite the fact that it's an extremely complicated story to cover. And it can be complicated, I guess, knowing how to use that material. For example, BBC Verify had a number of individuals, um, a gunman that had taken part in those surprise attacks. One of them was identified as almost certainly being a policeman from Gaza in his portrait run. Uh, do you sometimes have to be a little wary of that information, or is it a case of, look, it's out there, it's been broadcast, if you like, on social media, and the more detail we can give people, the better? I think it's a bit case by case, to be honest. The, the overall mantra will be that something shouldn't go out on the BBC without us knowing that it's true. There are occasions 
we would broadcast something and we would tell the audience we've not been able to independently verify a claim. Um, and then the audience knows what we're dealing with. And we will always do our best to, to verify that. If it's not possible to do it, then we need to be transparent about that. And we need to caveat our coverage of the reaction to it with the fact that we uh, do or do not have our own verification of the source material. On the BBC's media show last week, uh, there was a short interview with correspondent from your colleagues or rivals, if I could put it like that, at Channel 4. And he was saying they were acutely aware, all of them on the ground, that almost every single word was being scrutinised by critics for bias or prejudice. Is there anything broadcasters can do to protect their correspondence from such intense scrutiny by other people who have agendas and don't like it when their own particular point of view or chosen vocabulary is uh, is presented? I think that's a very um, appropriate diagnosis of the problem. The language we use in all kinds of stories, but it's particularly true, you know, in, in, in the Israel Gaza situation, is absolutely critical. Every word needs to be checked and rechecked and double-checked for any implication which is either inferred or, or implied by accident, um, because our job is to be impartial, to tell the reality of the story, most importantly through the witnessing of that story by our own correspondents. And that's why we've got a significant number of correspondents in Israel, and that commitment is open-ended as far as we're concerned. We also have to make sure that where we, in our production process, perhaps back in the newsroom in London, for example, are adding scripts around that, explanations, leaning into that scrutiny on language, that we're using expertise, that we are mobilizing our knowledge as an organization, and that we're making sure that at every stage of that, every sentence, every paragraph is reflective of what we know to be true, that adjectives can be dangerous because they, they may imply something which is more emotive than we mean it to be. So we have to be quite clean in our language in these circumstances. Of course, people can come on the BBC and express their views in language of their choice. All of those things help to do two things. First of all, to keep our coverage sort of straight and honest. And secondly, to ensure that correspondents on the ground aren't endangered by slips or mistakes that are made in good faith elsewhere in the BBC's output. Uh, we're finding it across, it's a worldwide problem, isn't it? Um, established news agencies uh, suffering a bit of public cynicism, uh, declines in trust. You know, we're hearing like members of the, the Conservative Party who are in power in the UK openly criticising uh, the BBC. Is that having an impact on the way you do your jobs? I think the criticism of the BBC from politicians is as old as the BBC, pretty much need to listen sometimes because just because they're habitual critics doesn't mean they're wrong, but we've actually got to be pretty resilient about our editorial policy. We've got a well-developed set of editorial guidelines which have stood the test of time over many, many difficult stories, Um, not just wars and atrocities and campaigns like the IRA, for example, or the awful events uh, of ISIS or the current war in Ukraine. The editorial guidelines are robust, they're public, you can go online and look at them. Um, all of our journalism uh, abides by those guidelines. And if you have a set of guidelines that you believe in as an organisation and your output complies with them, that's a significant defence to uh, some of the less well-founded attacks that we sometimes find ourselves on the wrong end of. And broadly speaking... Worldwide, do you think reliable news organisations that aspire to be objective and impartial and honest, can they win in the longer term against the 
this growing volume of sort of amateur and partisan sources of news and content and comment, which, you know, which don't value uh, that striving to be objective and so on. And is the sort of traditional BBC news values going to be hard to defend as we go on? You're completely right. The news market is changing. Audience behaviours are changing. And actually, I think that the proliferation of non-impartial news, opinion-led news, is actually an opportunity for the BBC and for other public purpose, public service news organisations around the world, because we believe that people recognise the difference between impartial objective news and opinion. There's room for opinion. There's nothing wrong with opinion. Opinion is part of free speech. We are very, very keen to play a very significant role in squashing disinformation and misinformation, myth-busting, if you like, because that changes the political discourse based on things that are not true. And part of our job is clearly to ensure that members of our audiences have got the information they need on an impartial basis to form their own judgments about the issues of the day. So getting under the, under the skin of claim and counterclaim, some of which falls under the heading of untrue claim and counterclaim on loads of stories, that's part of our role. And actually in that, there's probably an opportunity there for public service broadcasters around the world to play a bigger role and to use the platforms they've got to, if you like, bring um, a new level of doubling down on our values um, to the changing media marketplace. So is it not a worry for you at all that, for example, at the recent Conservative Party conference, you had senior Conservative Party figures, even your former Prime Minister Liz Truss, applauding uh, GB News, you know, one of the opinion-led broadcasters you mentioned there for disrupting the news business and actually, you know, opposing, as they put it, uh, the BBC. Is that just all noise to you, or do you have to genuinely be concerned that the party in power, you know, seems not to respect uh, the BBC and its values? Well, first of all, I didn't mention GB News, so just to be clear about that. Um, I I think GB News, uh, and there are other examples, are part of a regulated broadcasting system in the UK, and the regulator, which is a body called Ofcom, needs to do what it needs to do to ensure that regulated broadcasters stick within the rules. That's not really the BBC's problem or concern. Um, Our concern is that um, we want to uh, bring our audiences with us on a values-led editorial proposition. Uh, Some politicians will like that. Some politicians will not like that. That's up to them to make that case. Uh, It's not our business to try and stymie debate about the BBC. Everybody in the UK pays for the BBC, and therefore everybody's entitled to a view about the BBC. And some people express it very forcibly, and others choose not to do so. That is entirely up to them. Our job is to go out there and make sure that our journalism is the best it can possibly be. Of course, like all organisations based on human judgment, we sometimes make mistakes. That's, that's life. Um, and when we make mistakes, we need to be open to uh, criticism, and we need to be open to views about what we do in the normal course of events. We're not short of views about what the BBC does and doesn't do, um, and I'd like to get into a debate about other broadcasters and, and, what, and what they do. It's part of the political discourse, and where it's unhelpful, of course, um, we, you know, we wish uh, that people had sometimes kept their counsel, but we're not in the business of trying to mute people who have problems with the BBC or indeed people who endorse uh, uh, ups, you know, um, new start um, organisations in the media sector.
It was the BBC's chief executive of news, Jonathan Munro, who's also the broadcaster's director of journalism. And there he was talking to me from Sydney Airport after he addressed the South by Southwest Festival in Sydney this week about how the BBC delivers news from conflict zones and handles criticism from citizens and politicians and even the UK's own government. And finally, this weekend on Media Watch, as we've just heard, the language journalists use for contentious issues has to be carefully considered. But for sports, things are a lot looser, even on traditional and established broadcasters. Hence, last Monday, RNZ's Joe Porter in Paris described the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal collision of France and South Africa this way. It was two teams with some massive physical forward packs beating the living snot out of each other. Well, that must have looked great in slow-mo. And among the many Irish pundits claiming the All Blacks were afraid of the number one ranked Irish in their quarterfinal was the former Irish international, Jerry Thornley. Ireland are in New Zealand's heads like never before. You've got to look at it from their point of view. And I've been, I've been around longer than I wish, but I've been covering a lot of New Zealand tours and I've been covering a lot of New Zealand Ireland games. And I'm telling you, Ireland, are, like, they're in their heads. But that's a bit of an ironic assessment given that the Irish stadium anthem by the Cranberries has the refrain, What's in your head? And he wasn't the only overconfident Irish pundit, as Hayden Donnell discovered in this week's Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Mark Leishman last Wednesday. Their second rows are quite old and they're not as, they don't work as hard as Ireland. So Ireland went there. New Zealand's back rows, Sam Kane doesn't know how to rook properly. Ireland having a massive chance, like a massive chance. They're never going to get a better chance. Thank you. And, you know, before I go, I want to just shout out to the stuff journalist, Tony Wall. He yeah. said, I'm declaring it. I'll run naked through the street if the All Blacks beat the Irish team next week. He said that last week. It's happening. We're holding you to that, Tony. Okay. He's saying that he wants to donate $50 instead. No dice. <laughs> We're on, you're honouring that. If you missed it, that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. But according to Sir John Kerwin on Sky Sports, last weekend's game wasn't about what was in the All Blacks' heads, but what was on the backs of the Irish. Can't get that monkey off your back. You don't get it off your back quick. It turns into a gorilla. It's now a gorilla for them. But shortly after that on Sky Sports, there was nothing holding back the freestyling fan reporter Joey Wheeler in the Flying Mullet Bar live in Papamoa. I'd like to make an apology to my wife, my boss. I may or may not be there tonight. This place is rocking. I'd also like to apologise to the Cranberries because I think I got the song name wrong and the sun. But I'd like to apologise to absolutely nobody. Let's go, the All Rags! Well, that was after the quarterfinal. Hope Joey Wheeler paces himself for next week's Rugby World Cup final in Paris on Sunday morning. And if that gets too much for him, or for you, you can always tune in to Media Watch on again at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.